Welcome to the Nature Reliance Podcast, where we explore the history and practical experience of the great outdoors and discover new ways to connect with nature. I'm Craig Cottle, your guide through the fascinating world of natural living and survival skills through experiential education and interviews. Today's episode is brought to you by the Nature Reliance School Online Membership, an immersive online learning experience designed for outdoor enthusiasts just like you. Are you passionate about the outdoors? Do you crave more knowledge about disaster readiness, wilderness survival, bushcraft, tracking, and nature awareness? If so, the Nature Reliance School online membership is your gateway to a community of like-minded individuals, all dedicated to learning and sharing essential outdoor skills. With the Nature Reliance School online membership, you get exclusive access to a wealth of resources, including expert-led tutorials, interactive webinars, and a library of engaging courses, downloadable books, and documents. Whether you're a beginner or an experienced outdoorsman, there's always something new to learn. So don't wait. Click on the link below to join the Nature Reliance School online membership today. Embrace the wilderness, enhance your skills, and become part of a community that values nature as much as you do. Now, let's dive into today's episode. This is Craig Cottle, Director of Nature Blind School, with another interview for the podcast. Check it out. This is my good friend, Jim Cobb. Jim is one of the most well-respected and even-tempered individuals in the disaster readiness and survival communities. He is editor-in-chief of two incredibly popular magazines, author of several books, and has been a great mentor to me and, well, he's just a good friend. We discuss disaster planning and readiness, writing on the topics, his latest project that's coming out soon, and much, much more. Look in the description below for all the links to the things that Jim and I mentioned in this podcast. Here is Jim Cobb. Well, Jim Cobb, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, sir. It's been a long time coming, I think. Yeah, man. I think I, think I first asked you to come on the podcast maybe, I don't know. Two years ago? <laughs> I don't know, man. It's been a while. Been it has a while. been a while. I'm glad we're finally able to connect. Yeah, and I, I don't know if that's more me or you, because you are one of the busiest men I know. I am. I am, but there's a reason for that. I love what I do. So, for those that are new to who Jim Cobb is and what you do, tell us where you are now, how you got here, and what is it that you do? All right. Well, we'll start. Uh, we'll start at the beginning, as they say. Um, I, I've been into prepping since long before prepping was ever a term that was in common use, you know, it was before that term was ever coined. I grew up in the Midwest, severe weather, like winter storms, very common, you know, tornadoes, all that fun stuff. So being ready to handle things like that was just, that's just how you lived. You know, I can remember when I was a kid, when you buy a car, you know, it was always a used car that you got from somebody the first thing you bought was a pair of jumper cables, you know, because you knew at some point you're going to have to either jumpstart your car or you're going to have to help somebody else jumpstart theirs. Mom always gave you an old blanket or quilt to throw in the trunk. I mean, this is just how it was. You know, you just, it was a matter of course. Add to that, growing up at the height of the Cold War and the ever-present threat of, you know, nuclear war, the Soviets are going to launch on us and all that fun stuff. But interestingly, for me, it wasn't so much the threat of, oh, my God, we're going to get bombed out. It was that the Cold War prompted a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction. 
things like The Survivalist by Jerry and Sharon Ahern. And those types of stories really captured my attention and my imagination. And I started thinking, okay, how would somebody really go about planning to survive something like that? You know, and that's, you know, and in my life, I'm like 10, 11, 12 years old at this point. And that's when I really kind of dove into the, the survivalism angle. And, you know, I read everything I get my hands on, you know, I go out and try different things, you know, as best I could as a kid. Over time, it just, you know, I built and built and built upon that knowledge base. And I've always been a writer. I've always loved to write. So I think it was just a matter of time before the two interests coincided. And I started writing about preparedness. At this point, I've been writing professionally, and I define professionally as getting paid actual money for writing. I've been doing that for about 10 years, give or take. Uh, currently, I'm the editor-in-chief for Prepper Survival Guide and Backwoods Survival Guide magazine. I've got about nine books on the market right now, with number 10 coming in June. And uh, I'm having the time of my life doing something I love to do. Nice. Now I want to get to those magazines in a bit. Okay. But I want to go back to something you mentioned. You said at that early stage in your life, that 12 or 13, you were reading everything you get your hands on. You talking about books, magazines, what were you reading? Um, both, uh, there wasn't a whole lot available back then, you know, not like there is today. Um, but American survival guide magazine was around back then. I remember reading that. Um, there was another one that was very short lived, but I liked it. I think it was called New Breed, where it was kind of a, a spinoff of Soldier of Fortune combined with the survival angle. And it was, it was goofy. It was very militia type, which was kind of popular then, but it had some good stuff. Uh, I remember I read a ton of books by Ragnar Benson, who used to write for Paladine Press. You know, I think everybody, in our age range, who was had that interest back then, you know, Ragnar was definitely one of the godfathers of modern survivalism. In Paladine Press in general, I mean, they, when they were at the height, they had just a ton of books about survival and preparedness and all that. Now, not all of them were whiz-bang awesome. You know, there, there was quite a bit of questionable content that came out of there, but uh, the, the good stuff was good. You know, let's put it that way. So let's talk about your magazines then, the ones that you edit, uh, editor-in-chief on. Let's talk about those two. Because okay. it's it's two and specifically, right? And you, right. Do you do editing work for anybody else or just no. those two right now? Okay. Nope, not yet. Uh, I have had conversations with a couple other editors, you know, offering you know, as their backup, so to speak, you know, if they get into a jam, give me a call. Uh, and they've done the same for me, you know, but as you know, it, it's actually, it's a very close knit community. When you get to the, the professional writers and editors and the survival and prepper niche, we all know each other. You know, we're always bouncing work back and forth, that kind of stuff. I have found that it's, it's one of the very nice, surprising parts of, I don't write obviously as much as you do, but what I do, I've found that to be so true. Everybody's incredibly helpful. Yep. Yep. Yeah. We're all in this together. Yeah. No joke about it. No joke. So tell me about these two magazines. Okay. Well, back in, I'm going to say it was fall of 2017. Um, 
uh, a publisher approached me via email, wanted to talk to me about uh, a new magazine that they were planning. At that time, we didn't have a title for it yet. I, I had a couple of phone conversations with them about what they wanted to do. And basically, the, the initial plan was they wanted to do uh, a prepper magazine, but it was, only, it was just going to be a single issue. It was just going to be a special one-off. Okay. And in the conversations I had with them, I said, you're going to want to make this a regular thing. I, I promise you this is going to be more popular than you think it's going to be. And they said, well, let, you know, let's see what we can do. So I started bouncing ideas back and forth with, you know, kind of the, the, the focus and the style that we were after. You know, we wanted to make a, a unique identity for the magazine. We didn't want to be just what everybody else was doing. And at that time, I also reached out to a bunch of writers that I knew who were heavily experienced in the subject matter. And we put together what eventually turned out to be the first issue of Prepper Survival Guide, which came out in the spring of 2018. My prediction proved correct. It didn't take long for them to say, yeah, we're going to make this quarterly. Right around the time that they decided to do that, they also said, we'd like to do another magazine with more of a back-to-the-land homesteading wilderness angle, and we eventually called that Backwoods Survival Guide. It was kind of funny because as we were going through all these different possible titles for these magazines, we discovered very quickly that there's only so many different synonyms that you can use for these that make sense, and there aren't already in use, you know, with talked about calling it American Prepper Guide at one point. And I was like, well, that's too close to American Survival Guide. And I was already writing for American Survival Guide at that time as well. You know, I didn't want to step on anybody's toes. So, you know, we ended up, we landed on Prepper Survival Guide and Backwoods Survival Guide. Prepper Survival Guide is more geared towards urban, suburban, and more of a disaster readiness focus. Whereas Backwood Survival Guide is more about the bushcraft, the wilderness survival, homesteading, frugal living, that kind of thing. Between the two, I think we hit all of the major uh, touch points in the under the prepper umbrella. You know, um, I would agree. People, I would agree one hundred percent with that. I, I actually really enjoy reading the magazines as well as writing for them. So it's it's I agree one hundred percent. Well, that's why I tell people, you know, I've got the best job in the world because I get to see all of these articles before anybody else. Right. You know, I, I get the. So is the that a good thing? Peak. I mean, how much editing do you do, Jim? Um, it, it varies by the writer and it varies by the article. You know, somebody I've got some writers who their work is so clean that I barely have to add a comma here or there, you know, um, Angie Fulbright is one. Uh, Alice Jones Webb is another where when they turn something in, man, I, I barely have to touch it. Um, I have some other writers who are really, really good. They're really great with their knowledge. Their, their writing is on point, but there's formatting stuff that I've got to play with and kind of wrestle with a little bit because they're using a different software than I use or you know things like that. It's never anything horrendous at all. It's more just uh, got to tweak it here and there to get it to fit the mold, so to speak. But I, I don't have any bad writers. I really don't. Everybody I work with, you included, you guys are, you make my life so much easier 
really. <laughs> That's good. So as, as go, let's go back to each of these individually. Prepper is more urban, suburban. Um, tell our listeners that don't take advantage of getting this magazine, what kind of articles are they going to see in there? We'll be back after a quick break. Hey guys and gals, a quick break in our episode to talk about a game changer in outdoor cooking, the Fire Maple Backpacking and Camping Stove System. Whether you're hiking, fishing, or even prepping for emergencies, this portable pot and jet burner is a must-have in your gear. Best part, it's nearly half the price of a comparable jet boil stove system. Thanks to its leading heat exchange technology, you'll experience reduced boiling times by up to 30% compared to traditional stoves, even in windy conditions. That means more time enjoying the outdoors and less time cooking. Are you ready to upgrade your outdoor cooking game? Click the link in the description now to grab yours. Trust me, your outdoor adventures will never be the same. Just off the top of my head, uh, we have upcoming articles on small space prepping where, you know, you live in an apartment or a condo, where are you putting all this stuff? Um, we do a fair amount of self-defense articles in prepper. Uh, we've got an article coming up on how to escape common holds. You know, somebody grabs her from behind or grabs you from the front. What do you do about that? We do a fair amount of, um, not necessarily weapons usage, but kind of, you know, things that give you an advantage, you know, in a defense situation. We try to avoid getting real heavy into firearms because I, I feel that there are other publications out there who do that better. You know, we can't be everything to everybody. You know, there's just no way. And I am more than happy to let some of these other publications handle those topics so that we can focus on what we want to talk about. You know, looking at, I pulled up the, the table of contents for a recent issue of Prepper. We've got everything from beekeeping and urban foraging to defending yourself against people who are drunk or under the influence of other uh, substances. A great, great introduction to ham radio. Uh, dealing with dental emergencies, figuring out storage lives of the different things that you're going to want to keep on hand, whether it's food or non-food. Uh, we have a gear guide on multi-tools, an overview of several recent survival manuals that have hit the market. I mean, we've got a little bit of everything. Nice. Hey, for all of our listeners, uh, check out the description below and you'll find links to where you can find these uh, or find more information on these magazines. I'll make sure I'll include that later, Jim. Excellent. All right. So Backwoods, tell me about Backwoods. Backwoods, like we said, it's more of a homesteading. It's frugal living. It's bushcraft and survival. Looking at a recent table of contents, we've got uh, winter foraging, being safe when you're around water, you know, if you're ice fishing or things like that. Um, snowshoeing, an intro to snowshoeing, the different uses for oak trees, um, herbs for insomnia, how to make your own uh, teas and that kind of thing. Growing greens indoors through the winter season so you don't have to go without your salad. How to make sauerkraut. Um, a great article on Dutch ovens, how to use them, how to maintain them. It just 
again, a little bit of everything. And between the two magazines, you've got it all. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And one thing you hit upon that um, I'd like to ask you about, it seems like to me as an outsider to all the work that you do with these two magazines, you, it seems like you've got some people that are probably professional writers and that's primarily what they do. But it, to me, it seems like most of the writers that I read in your magazine tend to be, uh, I don't know if I want to use the word experts, but they're very good at what they do in particular fields. And then they also write. Would that exactly. be, am I a correct assessment yep. on that? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Good. And, and that's what I wanted. And that's one of the things that I told the publisher very early on was I, I didn't want to deal with a lot of freelance writers who can research a topic and, you know, spit out a 1200 word article. I, I know enough people like, like you, like Angie Fulbright, like Alice Jones Webb, like Christopher Nyergis, Dana Benner, people who they're out there living this stuff every day. And they also have the ability to communicate this information effectively and in an entertaining way. You know, I, I had a conversation recently with somebody who wanted to write for me and they had submitted an article and the information was good, but the article itself just, it, it didn't really flow very well, you know? And I said, we we're going to need to work on that. And their attitude was, well, you don't need to worry about the flow. All you need to worry about is presenting the reader with all the information. And I said, well, no, the, the, the objective is always to engage the reader and teach them along the way. You know, if you can't engage them, you lose them. They're never going to read the article, you know? So I'm, all of our writers are, are excellent at both. Yeah. I can see that. I'm not speaking about myself in particular, because I enjoy reading others. Cause I, I, you know, me and you've had this conversation and for everybody listening, if there's anything I've done in writing that you like, a lot of it has to do with Jim Cobb mentoring me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm from the get go. I, I, for those listening, when I got the contact uh, from a publisher for my first book, I contacted Jim and said, Hey, Jim, you got to help me with this. I don't know if I can do this or not. <laughs> and uh, Jim mentored me and has been mentoring me ever since. So I appreciate you in that regard, Jim. But it's with that said, it's, it seems like um, your writers tend to do exactly what you're saying really well, meaning I get, I often find that I'm having a conversation with them by reading their work. Yep. I mean, and I like and that. And one thing I, I really have tried to do is allow the writers to develop their own voice, you know, their own style within certain parameters. You know, because it's a magazine, we have to have uh, a basic format for the articles to make everything fit the way it's supposed to in the different layouts. But within that, you know, I encourage all of my writers to develop their own, you know, personality in writing their own voice. And that's one of the things I really love is sitting down and going through all the submissions. And I'm to the point where I don't have to look at the name. As I start reading the article, I can tell you who wrote it. And oh, I think really? that's nice. really cool. Yeah. Hey, that's a, that's a positive thing about that. Absolutely. But, but I'm, I'm assuming that there's some distinct challenges that come along with, with the work that you do. And I want to talk about two. I want to, talk about the challenges that you deal with as an editor. I also want to talk to you about the challenges that you deal with as a writer. Can we talk about what challenges you have as an editor first? Sure. Um, 
one of the biggest challenges I have is helping the writers focus the article on a specific area. And what I mean is we'll get a, you know, I'll have somebody pitch me. I want to talk about winter survival. Well, okay. You could write an entire book on winter survival. What do you, what part of that do you want to focus on? And then, you know, you have to keep narrowing it down because there's only so much space in the magazine. You know, we run anywhere from 17 to 20 articles in every issue. There's only so many pages, you know, so sometimes it's a challenge getting the writer to, to zero in on a certain aspect that not only is going to be informative and entertaining, but that they're going to be able to cover adequately within the confines of the space. The other angle with, with being an editor is each issue. We, we really don't do theme issues like some other publications where you might have an entire issue about bugging out or an entire issue about winter survival or whatever. We don't do a whole lot of that. But at the same time, I don't want to have everything be completely disjointed and, you know, have 17 or 20 articles that have nothing in common with one another. So sometimes, you know, I'll get a really great pitch from a writer and I'll, you know, I want the article, but I'm not going to run it right now. We're going to wait because it really will flow nicely with this other article that we have planned in a future issue, you know, that kind of a thing. But well, I know one of the things, not to interrupt you, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, one of the things that you've done, because I get to be on the other side of that, is that you'll, when you put out an email and say, hey, we're taking pitches for this, you'll say, okay, keep in mind, everybody, this is going to be March of 2022 when this publishes. And that at least gets the writers on the same page of, you know, you're, you're not going to have a wintertime survival. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's one of the things that non-writers might not understand that, you know, we're writing these issues months in advance. If I wanted to do a Christmas article, I'm planning that in June at the latest, you know, and sometimes, you know, going into the writing end of it, it can be hard sometimes to get your head in the game when, you know, it's July and you're writing about, you know, winter survival. You know, it's 95 degrees with 90% humidity, and you're trying to talk about why, do, why you should dress in layers. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'll tell you what, I mean, on my side of that, I mean, because one of the things I wanted to get out for our listeners, because there's listeners out there that I think have an interest in writing, and I wanted to, that's one of the greatest things I wanted to get out of you on my side of it. I know that there's times where I'm thinking, I need to take some photos for this. And this is not the time to do that. <laughs> I mean, you got a oh, bunch yeah. of leaves in the background and it's supposed to be a wintertime article. And we have to find those little spots out there when I'm doing a wilderness article and go, okay, we gotta, we gotta make sure that there's no green leaves showing up in this particular <laughs> shot. Yep. It, it, it can be challenging, you know, now granted you can do a little bit with stock photography where if you're just trying to illustrate, you know, you just want to point out a guy with a backpack walking through an autumn forest, we can do that. Hey, you tell know? people how that works, Jim. When you say stock photography, some of our listeners might not even know what that means. Well, there are various websites out there like Getty Images and Shutterstock where a publisher can buy photos and use them in the publication. There's also ones out there that are free. 
So what we'll do, not so much for like a DIY type article or anything, or anything that's gear centric, but if we want a great lead image of a guy snowshoeing and we're writing that article in August, we're not going to be able to do that ourselves. So we'll go to one of these sites and we'll find a really great photo of somebody snowshoeing and, you know, we'll purchase it and run it, publish it with that article. We don't do it a ton. You know, I, I always prefer to have the writers provide their own photography, but at the same time, like you said, you know, we're limited by what we have available. If it's summer and we're working on a winter article or conversely, you know, it's December and we're trying to do something on boating safety we're not going to be able to just run out there and do that. Um, now that said, I know that I myself and I know some of the other writers, we have a collection of photos that we've taken over the years of various and sundry things that we just, Hey, this might make for a good article sometime and we'll snap the photo and we'll just put it in a folder and we'll just keep it off to the side until we need it. You know um, I I've had some writers who, they planned an article a year in advance, you know, just because it was something they were interested in, they were going to do it anyway. So why not write an article about it? So, you know, they might be wanting to do an article on spring gardening, you know, and starting your garden. Well, they took those photos the summer prior, you know, and just had them off to the side. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's some good planning. So um, let's, let's talk about, writing as well from your perspective what what are some of the challenges that you deal with as a writer one of the biggest challenges is trying to come up with something new you know to write about um i mean let's face it we've been writing about this stuff even if you just want to go back to the 80s you know for 40 some years there are very few subjects that haven't been talked about before so it's a matter of how can we focus the article in a new way you know what kind of a twist can we put on it to make it new to make it refreshing at the same time you know we get feedback from readers once in a while where i can't believe you wrote another article about starting fires you know this has been done to death it has but every issue you've got it you you have readers who are reading this material for the very first time who've never read about how to start a fire with a ferro rod before. They've never heard of a ferro rod. They don't even know what it is. So with each issue and with each article, we try to keep both audiences in mind. You know, you're going to have people who have been around a long time and they know all this and you have people who are brand new and you want to give information that's going to be relevant to both of them if, as best you can, you know? So as a writer, the challenge is how to do that with each article and not pull your hair out. Um, and, you know, the, the photo thing that we talked about, that's always been a challenge, particularly for me. My wife is an outstanding photographer. Me, not so much. Amen. So, <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> no, I, I'm, in, I'm, I'm with you there, Jim. <laughs> so, there, you know, there have been times where it's like, hey, honey, we need to you know, block off sometimes they need some photos, you know, and uh, it, it works out, you know, she, she's able, she has that eye that I don't have. You know, I look at some of my earliest photography from 
back when I was doing blog posts and that, and I just cringe. You know, I'm just like, how how could I have thought that this was at all interesting for anybody to see? <laughs> you know, and, and in all seriousness, I'm uh, not saying this just to be saying it either. One of the things I really like about your magazines is is the photography, and it. it's always fantastic. It is. You know, I have some writers, you know, and some photographers, you know, your wife is one of them that, I mean, they just, the, the photos they do are just outstanding. You know, the, the composition, the layout, the color, the lighting, everything is just really, really on point. And again, you know, some of the photos that we run, they're stock, you know, we, we bought those because it was a great background photo for a lead or something like that. But some of these that people turn in, it's just like, wow, I can't believe that, you know, you were able to pull that off. That's really cool. It is good stuff. And it's, it's uh, one of the things I've appreciated that, that again, you've mentored me on is, is that um, I've changed in the last year, probably basically upon your very good job of uh, good criticism is trying to lead that article with a nice photograph that always blends the two together and i start when you you were recommending some things to me i started just looking at the old magazines looking at seeing how everybody else does that and that man that really catches the eye in those magazines in particular and that i i would say that that's another i don't want to call it a challenge but it's an area that i focus on as an editor is uh trying to get the writers to provide that really really good lead paragraph you know those first few sentences that are going to catch the reader's attention and i have some writers who really really understand that and really get it and i have other ones where it's like okay i've got i'm going to rework this a little bit move this over here and now we've got it so it works you know how how much does the the idea of i don't know what else to call it but an idea the idea of storytelling play out in an article in your magazines uh this is something i'm kind of I'm trying to observe other content producers out there. And it seems like it's a real important aspect of, of engaging others, like tell a story in that first paragraph sort of thing. It helps. It helps, but you can either do it or you can't. Meaning, you know, there are some writers who can really pull that off. There are others where it comes across as forced. And on top of that, there are some articles some topics that lend themselves naturally to that and others that might not, you know, if you're talking about an article about, let's say canning chicken, you could probably come up with a a story to go with that, but it's going to come across as one of those blog posts where all you want to know is what temperature to set the oven at. You've got to read through their life story from conception to that afternoon before you can finally get that little bit of information. Right. Yeah. Oh man. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is coming out in this podcast that I also greatly appreciate about or appreciate about you is your ability to communicate effectively. And you actually have a book on communication, which is fantastic. Uh, And with that, in mind, I also have a link to Jim's books down in the description. Everybody, as you're listening to this, check those out, please. That's Amazon links. You can check those out. But one of the things I noticed, Jim, because we're friends on social media, particularly Facebook, you have a real good way of communicating with people that, um, I 
don't know if it's disagree is, I mean, you and I talk about this on occasion, but I'd like for you to share some of the ideas that you utilize to maybe these foundation concepts that you utilize as a, as communication on social media with others. Well, I think one of the things that's often missed on social media in general, and, you know, even face-to-face communication is listening truly listening and now you're on social media so you're reading not listening but the the same principle applies hearing what the person is saying rather than just waiting for your turn to respond that's that's a key thing you know that's what we're after when we have a conversation right we want to be heard and when we feel like we're not we get frustrated and we get angry and that's usually where the meaningful dialogue ends you know, and we either walk away or we start hurling insults or whatever the case is. Um, so I, I find that if you take the time to think about what the person is saying and try to understand their perspective, it helps a lot. I'm not saying you're, you have to agree with them. By far, there, there's an awful lot of people on social media that I don't agree with. Um, but if nothing else, Give them the opportunity to say what they want to say and think about it for a second. And, you know, if you agree, great. If you don't agree, great. And move on. You know, just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I don't like you as a human being. You know, and we've kind of drifted away from that, particularly with social media. Um, You and I both know that on a daily basis, there are things constantly floating around on social media that people say that they would never dare say to somebody's face, you know? And I think that we grew up in a time where there was a very real risk of getting popped in the mouth. If you said the wrong thing to the wrong person and that's gone away because everything is through a computer screen or through a phone screen. And if that risk were to come back a little bit, I think, some attitudes might change. Yeah, I agree. I agree on that as well. I know I keep saying it, but I agree hundred percent on that. It's, it's an unfortunate circumstance that we don't have the ability to logically reason and discuss things anymore. Yep. And we don't have the threat of that happening to us. I mean, exactly. I, I think that's, it's an interesting thing to consider in a conversation. Hey, if I say certain things, I might get hit in the mouth and have my teeth knocked out it really makes you consider what you're saying <laughs> in a, you in do, a good way. I mean, it I is, think that, it that's is. good for conversation and growth internally and, and collectively as a society, it's just, right. You know, and the thing is you'll, you'll have a certain segment who say that, you know, while people are too PC today and blah, blah, blah. Well, yes and no, there's something to be said for just being polite. for just having a civil conversation without the goal being how much can I get this person angry with, you know, I think that's a key word here. I'm just sitting here pondering what you're saying. And and I think one of the things that I've noticed about your communication skills is that you're always very polite. I try to be, I don't always succeed. Um, There have been a few instances just, you know, in the last year that, you know, I, I've gone off on somebody, but well, I think there's, there comes a time where being PC is just, you're not helping them. You almost have to let somebody know you're so far off because I mean, as an educator in particular, which is what you're doing with your writing, 
and editing of all of us other writers that you want to help people, you want to educate them. And if you just leave people to be in their wallow in their misery, then they're not helped. Right. Exactly. You know, in, in our little circle, our little niche in particular, there is just so much bad information out there that people, they, they just buy into it hook, line and sinker and trying to get them to understand why it's a bad idea. They don't want to listen because they've been, they read somewhere else that wasp spray is a very effective product to use in the self-defense situation. And you try to explain to them logically using science and using facts, why it doesn't work the way they think it does. And they will fight you tooth and nail about it. And after you know, you get to a certain point where you just kind of throw your hands up in there and say, okay, well, you know, Darwin's going to sort this out. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, there's some, you know, in that regard, there's some, with as many articles as you see and as much things that you've, as many things as you've written, there's probably some basic skills that you feel that everybody needs in disaster readiness. And what would you say a couple or three of those are? I think the biggest one is remaining calm and, and applying logic to the situation in hand, you know, and that that's a hard thing to, to train. It's a hard thing to master unless it's, you know, something innate, but being able to think on your feet without flying off the hand is a huge one. Obviously, if, a crisis or a disaster hits, you know, stresses through the roof, but being able to get past that and work the problem is, is a big one for me. You know, I'm very pragmatic, you know, when it comes to prepping and things like that, you have people who they want to focus on the whys, you know, why is this going to happen? And why is that going to happen? I don't care why I want to know what we're going to do about it. We can worry about the why later. We got to get through this first, you know, and that type of a mindset, I, you know, from where I'm sitting, I, I think it's beneficial and it's something that would help people get through the crisis at hand. Oh, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Mindset's, mindset's critical. What, what's another one, a, a, just a basic skill that you feel is important for disaster readiness? Um, the, this one will get a, a chuckle out of some people until I explain it, but being able to handle money is a big one because prepping costs money. There's no way around it. I mean, you can be as self-reliant as you want to be. You're still going to have to come up with money, pay taxes on the land you own or whatever the case is. And far too many people create their own disaster because they, they're not handling their money effectively. There are far too many people in this country where a $500 repair bill on a vehicle is going to blow them out of the water, you know, and if they don't repair that car, they can't get to work to earn money to pay for the car. Um, and, you know, you can substitute anything you want there, you know, a car or a water heater, whatever the case is, you know, a sudden expense of a few hundred dollars just kills people. And yes, there are cases where, you know, it's kind of taken out of their control, but an awful lot of the time, it's something within their control if they'd have planned ahead, you know? And one of the things that I, I try to hammer on a lot in my writing is the, the financial preparedness. And again, this is my wife. 
She is the financial guru in our house. Everything I know about money comes from her. And I learned the hard way, man. <laughs> I, I know what it's like to be broke. I know what it's like to be wondering, how am I going to pay my bills? And it was a lot of hard work and a lot of sacrifice to get to where we are today. It's an area that I think too few preppers even think about or talk about or consider to be part of their overall preparedness plan. And it, it really is a big thing. Well, one of the things that I absolutely just straight up stole from you I've said this before, but this idea of, and I don't think it's semantics either. I think there's a difference between readiness and preparedness. And one of the things that it seems like you're mentioning with this number two here in particular is that by golly, Jim, you're talking about trying to do things ahead of time, right? And a lot of people kind of in the, the prepper community talk about, okay, after the disaster has happened. This is what I have. This is what I do. This is how I handle myself. And it's really the stuff that happens long before that, that creates success or failure in the midst of that disaster. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and planning ahead doesn't mean you're focused on doom and gloom. You know, I I've said for years, okay, because the, the general public, they, they would look at the preppers and the survivalists as, you know, being so negative and always talking about the end of the world and disasters and blah, blah, blah. We're not doom and gloom. We are the ultimate optimists because we're convinced that no matter what happens, we'll be able to get through it because of the plans that we have in place. Okay. So along those lines, uh, on the other side, what do you think the biggest mistake is that people make? in these disaster survival situations, either pre-event or post-event? Well, pre-event, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is feeling like they can just throw money at the problem, feeling like they can just go out and buy a whole bunch of stuff and there, I'm prepared. You know, um, that's part of it, you know, spending money on gear and supplies and food and things like that. That's important, but fostering the skills and most importantly like we said the mindset that's where the real work is done you know and that's where you're going to solve the problems i've seen far too many preppers who feel like you know they need to go out and buy a thousand dollar pallet of special survival food to store in the basement where really they could get everything they need at the local grocery store save a ton of money and use that money to take classes and seminars and buy books and buy DVDs and just invest in the education part of it. I think that's probably one of the biggest mistakes that I've seen in the last 10 years. It was disheartening. I was working for a large uh, provider of survival supplies. And back then they were sharing a lot of research from the industry, if you will. They, they were just internet marketing folks, right? And one of the things that came out of that was that 80% of the money that's spent on survival supplies is spent on food. And that was, you know, that's probably 10 years ago. I don't know if it's the same now or not, but I would gather that it is. And that's, I think that's just very telling if they're not spending on education. No. And they're, they're spending it on the food because they've been scared into it. Yeah. Oh yeah. So do you think that there's, uh, as far as, us humans as a species, us as people, as a society, you think there's any 
innate or natural things that are happening to us that keep us alive in disaster or lost in the wilderness scenarios. I'm a big wilderness guy, obviously, um, that, you know, that you've seen from all the reading, writing that you do. I think there are a few personality traits that, that prove to be beneficial. You know, one of them is just plain old stubbornness, you know, that being convinced, no, I'm not going to lose. I, I'm not going to let, I'm not going to let this stop, you know, whatever it is. I think that's a big one. I, I think everybody has, at least to agree, everybody has that survival instinct. You know, it, it's what prevents us from walking into traffic. We, we all have that to an extent, but I do think for many of us, it's been dulled a little bit because of the modern world and the way we live our lives, you know, the, the conveniences that we enjoy. And trust me, I, I am not one to give up my cable or my, you know, my Netflix if I don't have to. But at the same time, because we're not living the same kind of life that people were, say, 100 years ago, where there's a lot more work involved in daily life for most people. Because we don't have that, it's been dulled a little bit. The, the, the sense of urgency or immediacy of, you know, I need to get this garden planted now because if I don't get it planted now, we don't eat come October. That kind of a thing where, you know, today we just go to the grocery store, buy whatever we want. We're all good. With all of that said, I think people tend to surprise themselves when put into a bad situation. You know, I think an awful lot of people will rise to the occasion, at least in part. You know, most people are not just going to curl up into a ball and say, okay, I guess I'm going to die. I think most people are going to be like, all right, well, this sucks, but I need to get through this because I want to see my kids tomorrow. You know, they got to have a reason to live. And those, exactly. that have a, if those that have a reason to live, whether it's an internal uh, singular thing for them or somebody outside of them, they, if they have that, then they can tend work, work towards that goal. Absolutely. All right. I got some, uh, got some questions I'd like to ask of everybody. All right. And I'm guessing this is going to be a hard one. Maybe not. I'm looking to be surprised too. What is the favorite book you've ever read? Yeah, that's like, what's your, <laughs> which one's your favorite kid? <laughs> right. All right, um, let's talk about multiple ones. That's fine. All right, all right. Uh, one of the the best recent books that I've read is A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson. Craig, you'd like this one, I think. She's a wildlife biologist who's hired to do a survey of wolverines um, at near this abandoned old mountain resort. Okay. And once she gets there and she's on site and she starts setting herself up, shenanigans ensue where, you know, there are people who obviously don't want her there. And there's, you know, some thriller, some mystery, but there's an awful lot of wilderness. And it's really, really well written. One of the best books I've read in the last few years. Overall, one of my favorite series of books, uh, The Lost Level series by Brian Keene. Brian's a good friend of mine, excellent writer. The series itself has some survival elements to it, but it's really kind of, uh, if you remember when we were kids, there was that show Land of the Lost. 
where the family went through some portal and ended up in dinosaur times. It's kind of like that, but like on steroids where there's just, there's so much bizarre stuff that this guy finds or comes across on this world. He ends up, it's just a, I can't do it justice. It's just, it's bizarre. It's funny. It's action packed. It's, it's, I, I love the books and I'm patiently waiting for Brian to get the next one done for a prepper type novel or series. I like the rule of three series by Eric Walters. It, it's a young adult series, meaning it, the intended audience is like teenagers, young adults, but trust me there it's as a grown up. you're reading it. You're not going to be like, well, this is just for kids and this is stupid. Very well written. Uh, it has to do with an EMP and electromagnetic pulse that takes out the country and how this little town handles that. Um, nonfiction, one of the books I recommend to everybody is The Unthinkable by Amanda Ripley. Talks about the, the psychological and the physiological responses we have to danger, to stress, to disasters, and what to expect when it happens and how to improve your ability to react to it and, you know, different things. It's really good. I need to read that. I mean, not that the other ones are not my kind of cup of tea either, but that, that, that's the kind of stuff I absolutely just love to pour over. And I'll make sure Jim too, that I'll, I'll include links to all these in the description too, because people, people are definitely going to be interested. I'm sure. Um, okay. Question based upon what you just told me fiction or nonfiction. How much time do you spend on one or and the other? As a general rule, I read more fiction than I do nonfiction these days. Not for any specific reason other than I've always loved stories. You know, someday I'm hoping to, you know, knock on wood, be able to tackle fiction myself. But for now, I, I'm content to read fun stuff, interesting stuff, stories that make me think, stories that entertain me. And it depends on my mood. You know, I might go through, you know, a, a few days where I want to read something that is complete and utter fluff, where I don't have to really think about it all. It's nothing but popcorn for my mind. And then, you know, I want a story that really digs into something, really makes me think and ponder various and sundry topics. I read a fair amount of nonfiction. Don't get me wrong. I'm usually in the middle of two or three different books at any given time as it is. You know, I've got one that I'll read throughout the day and I've got one that I read at bedtime and then I'll have another book that I take with me whenever I go anywhere, just in case I get some downtime. Um, generally, I'm going to say it's fiction, probably two thirds fiction, a third nonfiction. But again, it depends on what I'm working on, too. You know, if I'm working on a new book of my own and I need to research this or that, it's probably going to be heavily nonfiction until that book's done. So there's uh, right now. There is no Jim Cobb fictional work no, going on. Yeah. No, okay. not at well, not officially. Uh, I think me and you've chatted about this. I've been trying to write some fiction just because I think it challenges me. And I, man, I struggle with that, Jim. Golly, I struggle with that. I, I can come up with all kinds of story ideas, but you know, implementing them is where the the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Well, a um, couple more questions I always ask of everybody. You know, we're heavily influenced by the outdoors and wilderness stuff. So I have two questions I always ask everybody. The funniest moment you've ever had in the outdoors? You know, I, I knew that question was coming. 
And I was talking to my wife about it last night, because for those who don't know this, my wife and I go on at least one hike every week. And we have for about five years now. We haven't missed a week yet. Um, so we've got a lot of field time. We were talking last night, trying to think of, you know, what are funny things that have happened? The one thing that I, I'm going to mention wasn't funny, but it was one of the most awe-inspiring things that has happened to us on all these hikes, okay? This was, I'm going to say about a year, year and a half ago, we were out on a hike. We came across a deer standing in a field, maybe 60, 70 yards away. How that deer didn't spot us first, I'll never know. She's just standing there in the field. You know, we're real quiet. We're like, you know, wow, check this out. And then a fawn comes walking up and starts nursing right there. And I was like, holy crap. I mean, where do you see that in the wild? You know, I mean, how many people have witnessed that just happened upon it by chance? And it was just so cool to stand there and watch that. All right. On the other side of that, perhaps maybe this is the most humbling moment too, but the most humbling moment you've had in the outdoors. The most humbling moment is more, it's not necessarily a specific moment, but as I've gotten older, I I've obviously slowed down a bit as people tend to do. And unfortunately being chained to a desk for hours each day has also brought on a fair amount of weight gain in the last couple of years. Those added together mean I'm not able to maintain a pace outdoors that I once found easy, you know, particularly on rougher terrain, going up hills, things like that. It's humbling to realize, you know, I'm not 10 feet tall and bulletproof anymore. You know, to a degree, I, I have to slow down. Otherwise, you know, I might not make it to the top of that hill. And, you know, there's plans in place to help mitigate some of this and, you know, lose some of the weight and get back on track. But in the interim, you know, my wife is the energizer bunny. She will walk and walk. I mean, just hours. She keeps and, you motivated yeah, out there. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Nice. So I spend an awful lot of my hikes staring at the back of her head. <laughs> <laughs> Man, it sounds like you'd kind of be lost without her, Jim. Uh, I, I would. I, I really would. <laughs> and that's fantastic. I love hearing that. Yeah, for real. Hey, uh, one more question before we head out of here. Uh, I'd, I'd just like for you to share, if you don't care, some helpful hints to those who are interested possibly in writing. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily for you, but just writing in general. People that want to write blogs or magazine articles or maybe even a book someday. What are some general helps or insights that you could offer some people? The first thing is ass in chair, fingers on keyboard. That's how writing gets done. It doesn't happen any other way. Talking about writing doesn't get the job done. Thinking about it doesn't get the job done. Telling other people, yeah, I'm going to write this article someday, doesn't get the job done. Sit your butt down, put your hands on the keyboard, and start pounding out words. That's how you're going to get paid. When it comes to magazines, I can't stress this enough. Research the magazine before you pitch any articles. You want to know what that magazine has covered in the last several issues so that you're not pitching something that they just ran. And you also want to understand how they put articles together, what those articles look like. And you want to be able to mirror their style and format as closely as possible. The less work you make for the editor, the more work the editor is going to make for you. When it comes to books, try to come up with 
a, a, a unique angle, a unique approach to whatever it is. Look at what's out there. Don't try to be a cookie cutter. Look and see how other people are doing it and figure out a way to make it unique and make it personal for you. For blogs, learn as much as you can about SEO marketing and keywords and all that. And I'll admit, I don't know jack about that kind of stuff. You know, I, I don't know how to do that very well. Luckily, I have other people in my life that can handle that for me. Sure. Hey, uh, last question for you then, because I meant to ask you this earlier. Tell me about your process, because I know a tiny bit about this, and it kind of blows my mind to think about it. Tell me about your process when you write. Quiet room, noise oh, God, around no. music. I, I have it. My office, so to speak, is the corner of my living room upstairs. It's, you know, just outside the bedrooms, people walking by all day long, you know, as they come in and out. I've got um, a radio. I've got a TV with a DVD player. I don't like absolute quiet. It drives me nuts. I worked for many years in an office where the loudest noise were keys tapping on a keyboard and the fans on a computer. And it drove me batty. And I swore that, you know, when I didn't have to live that type of existence in my working life, I wasn't gonna. And I've got, you know, probably 400 DVDs <laughs> that I cycle through. I've got, you know, all the different streaming channels. I've always got something playing in the background, whether it's music or TV or whatever. Do you, because uh, I knew this, but yeah. I just wanted, I just wanted other people to hear it. If somebody's interested in writing, I don't, I don't want them to feel like there's a cookie cutter image oh, and they no. just need to write. Yep. And, yep. and your way is incredibly different than my way. <laughs> um, but I've always wanted to ask you this question. So when you're, you've got these movies playing, I mean, are you writing and then taking a break and then watching the movie? Or are you just listening to that in the background? Both. Okay. What I do is I'll never. This if blows I'm, my mind, Jim, just so you know. <laughs> I could not do this and save my life. Well, what I do is it, everything that I have going while I'm writing, it it's nothing new to me. It's nothing that I'm going to be just totally engrossed in where I won't be able to pull away because I want to see what happens next. It's always something I know what happens next. It's a movie I've seen a dozen times, but it, it's something, you know, it, it's a favorite of mine. You know, it's The Road Warrior or Big Trouble in Little China or even, you know, some of the cartoons I watched as a kid, you know, I'll put those on. Just as background, it's just something going that a little part of my mind is engaged in. The rest of me is focused on the writing. And then when I hit a stopping point or I hit a snag in my writing, I'll look up and, you know, I might watch five, 10 minutes of the show or whatever, and then get back to the writing. And that's what I think a lot of writers struggle with at the beginning. You have to find a way that works for you. You know, I know writers who they have to have dead silence. Although they get distracted by the littlest thing. I know writers who will come up with a playlist and stick to that playlist while they're writing this book or this series of articles or whatever it is. I, I know writers who just turn on the radio and whatever plays plays, you know, everybody comes to the table with a different approach. You just need to figure out what works best for you. One of the reasons I asked another person that I look up to greatly is a, a friend of mine that I do knife training with and he's a knife builder. I mean, professionally 40 hours a week kind of building knives and he 
listens to movies in the background while he's building knives and he's a he's an incredibly creative person as well and it just that's so foreign to me i'm all, I always like hearing others thoughts on that kind of thing so i appreciate you sharing that well jim i think that's it unless there's something else you want to talk about no i think we're good man i mean we can certainly chat again sometime but uh, i think oh yeah got, i do i mean you know. there's I put I put things together to last about an hour, which is where we are. And I, I put notes together and I thought, man, I could do two or three of these with Jim. So I we'll, we'll definitely have you come back on whenever you want to come back on, man. Well, you know, we've talked about this before that it's a good thing we don't live near one another. Otherwise, neither one of us would get a damn thing done. <laughs> I know. Isn't that true? <laughs> That's so true, man. Oh, man. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you being on. And uh, everybody look in the description below for the links to – uh, everything that Jim has talked about, I'll make sure that I include those. And uh, we really appreciate you being on, Jim. Well, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. Hey, everybody. This has been Jim Cobb. And look for these links in the description below. As always, come on, join in. Let's learn together. And that wraps up another fantastic episode of the Nature Blinds podcast. I hope today's journey has inspired you to explore and connect with the natural world in new and exciting ways. Before I say goodbye, remember to check out the Nature Blind School online membership. If today's episode sparked your interest in wilderness skills and outdoor adventures, this online community is the perfect place for you to start or continue your journey. You can currently sign up for a year for only $99 and get two months for free. Click the link below to discover a world of expert-led courses, engaging content, and a vibrant community eager to share their knowledge and experiences. Whether you're starting your outdoor journey or looking to deepen your existing skills, the Nature Reliance School online membership is here to guide you. Thank you for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe for more adventures and share this podcast with your fellow nature enthusiasts. Until next time, come on, join in. Let's learn together.